Association of Business Communicators Amina Region podcast. This is Monique Sitnik. It has been a tough few years and a few weeks ago someone said to me that our people are physically, emotionally and spiritually tired. As communicators we've been working hard and trying to keep the lights on and wheels from falling off during the pandemic crisis and the continued changes and issues that are being flung at us on a regular basis. Following on from our podcast last week with Zora Artists on strategic alignment, today's podcast is with Russell Olivia Brooklands on the topic of what communications teams need to function effectively. Although he takes an internal communications perspective, many of his insights can be applied to different communications teams, whether you are in-house or not. Russell Olivia Brooklands is known in the internal comms world as Rob. He is a UK-based consultant and trainer for the communication game and has worked with companies such as Sony Entertainment and the United Nations. And we spoke over Zoom. I hope you find our conversation valuable. And on that note, welcome, Rob. Well, thank you very much for for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. And Rob, I noticed you spoke in the, the plural there. Oh yes, yes. It's um, it does sort of strike people as a bit weird. Uh, we actually have uh, a rare medical condition, which uh, means that our body actually functions better when we use plural pronouns. It sounds weird, but we only recently discovered that. And in fact, that particular condition means that we process the world in a slightly different way, which means that we have an ability to add value to internal comms people in ways that other people might not. So it's kind of useful as well. So wonderful diversity to the collective knowledge of internal comms. And I was reading a bit about you because I like to snoop a little bit and we have a lot of chit chats back and forth on LinkedIn. And I love the principle that I saw that you wrote, you don't have to be ill to get better and work on analyzing the symptoms of anything and everything that's keeping a team from fulfilling their potential. What might some of these symptoms be? some of the symptoms that keep IC teams from fulfilling their potential? Well, that's a fascinating question. In our experience, they actually tend to be sort of, of two types. Um, first of all, there are symptoms which just seem to be common across organisations worldwide. We've been doing this since the mid-90s, so we've, we've seen a lot. And it seems everyone has just kind of inherited an awful lot of stuff from the previous generation who inherited from the people before them and so on. Uh, and, of course, they're still being handed down today. And we know this because we actually came up with a list of 12 such challenges in 1996 when email was still in its infancy before intranets and and way before enterprise social networks. And yet they're still alive and well or perhaps alive and ill today. Now, of course, not everyone recognises all of these challenges, although some people do. But pretty much everybody recognises at least some of these, these 12 common issue. So what we could do, if you like, we could sort of quickly whip through them. And um, it might might be interesting to to find out, you know, or just to note down how many of these you recognize, knowing, of course, you know, really importantly, it's not your fault if you do. Okay, so far away there. Okay, so number one, clients who can't tell you what they want, but they'll know it's what they want when they see it. Uh Two, being brought in on projects at the last minute. Three, Clients who won't put aside enough time to brief you properly. Four, people making inappropriate changes to your copy. Five, having to spend ages getting communications approved. 
Six, not having enough budget to do the job as well as you feel it should be done. Seven, clients moving the goalposts or cancelling projects at the last minute. Eight, not having as much influence as you want or need in the organisation. Nine, wanting more confidence in your own or your team's writing skills. Ten, wanting more confidence in the amount of business value you're adding. And then the last two are slightly different. Eleven, employees complaining about communication overload. And at the same time, number 12, employees complaining they're not being kept informed. (laughs) <laughs> I think most of those have been ticked off on my list. I'm wondering how our listeners went and if they, they scored 12 out of 12 um, on well, that list. Of- <laughs> well, it's fascinating. When we work with, uh, with some organisations, you know, some people say, oh, yeah, we recognise three or four of them. Some say, oh, maybe half a dozen. And some people just look at us and say, do you work here? <laughs> you know, it's just, just how it goes. But the point is that however many you recognise Yeah, it's unlikely to be the whole story because we said there are two types of of these challenges and there's a bunch of other issues which are likely to be distinctive to particular organisations. So we found um, one international retailer was finding that messages were being misunderstood by employees for whom English was their second or third language. That's that's something else that can happen. Or Mm -hmm. um, there there was one company that embraced the idea that employees, you know, prefer to receive communications than their line managers. So they go, right, let's do it that way. But they didn't equip the line managers to be effective and they hadn't given the employees a separate channel for communicating feedback. So messages were getting stuck in both directions. So there's all of these other things that can be that can be going on. And, you know, if you think about what's going on, you know, your listeners think about what's, what's going on in, in their organisations, it's quite possible that they, they might be able to identify a number of specific symptoms in addition to those that you recognise from our list of, of common challenges. So what might be lacking within, say, a team, whether it's an internal communications team or an external communications team, in any communications team, why may they not be performing? Are there certain reasons that, that you've uh, discovered or that you've seen with your clients? Oh, absolutely. Um, and that, again, that, that's fascinating because essentially there are, there are subtle but important differences between the different teams. And also, let's not leave out the clients. Why are they not performing? So, you know, of we just kind of look, look at the whole thing. <laughs> whole picture. We, yeah, so we started getting curious about this well, well over a quarter of a century ago when we were still working in, in corporate brand management. So we were very much in sort of external comms at the time. And uh, But we had, as a corporate brand manager, we actually have responsibility for the internal communication standards as well. And uh, the company was involved in a, a merger, which inevitably meant loads of internal communication. But despite all the efforts of the internal communication team, you know, oftentimes things were going wrong and employees weren't doing what was expected of them and it was the IC specialists who were getting a lot of flack. So we thought, hang on a second, this, mm, there's something not quite right here. So we took a look at why people weren't performing. And what we found was that more often than not, internal communications get blamed for things which aren't internal communications. And to help everyone understand this, you know, to un- understand what was happening, we actually came up with something that we called the Smarted Principle. That's just, it's actually one of the things that makes internal communication different from external, and we can kind of explain why in a, mm-hmm. in a minute. That would but, be fascinating. But, okay, but um, 
but it's it's one of the the things that makes it I see so different from its external cousins because if people are going to whether they're internal or external audiences are going to deliver any given business communication outcome they need to have at least some of the resources covered by the smarted principle then none of this is rocket science in fact it's so blindingly obvious that many people don't give it attention but in addition to the idea that you don't have to be able to get better another of our little aphorisms is that the only way to be sure you don't overlook the obvious is to state it so let's do that let's let's just state the obvious here i i'm very curious what smarted stands for Robert. well it's <laughs> well, we're about to explain it um it stands the, the s uh, for example tells you that the audience may need certain skills to do whatever's being asked of them. Now, look, obviously, they don't always need that, but sometimes they do. The M of Smarted stands for money. So, you know, if uh, it requires a certain amount of budget to do this thing, then if they don't have the budget, it's not going to happen. Now, again, not every action requires a budget to do it, but if it does and they haven't got it, then they're in trouble. Then there's the A, which means people need to have the authority to do what's being asked of them. And most importantly, they, they need to know they have it. So often we have come across situations where employees you know, weren't doing what their employer wanted because they thought they weren't allowed. This happens a lot when it comes to, in particular, to, to writing standards, where more junior people believe they kind of have to use corporate speak and aren't allowed to write like human beings. <laughs> no one's told them. Have you ever come across that? Oh, many times. Yeah. <laughs> just, in, in, just throughout working and working with different clients, sort of a misconception that something needs to be a certain way because people don't feel like they can challenge the status quo or they feel like they can't try something new because they don't yeah. feel they have the authority. Yeah, absolutely. So then, then there's um, the R of Smarties, which is for responsibilities. You know, is everyone clear about what they are? And really importantly, do those responsibilities match up with someone's skills and authority? Because if they don't, it's fairly obvious what's going to happen, isn't it? <laughs> and then there's also the question of um, whether they have the T, the, the time, the T of smarty, which is the, the time. And have they got enough time to do what's being asked of them? On top of which, they also need the I. Then this is a really interesting one, the information, as we all know. That information may not be within the communication itself. It may be elsewhere and people need to refer to it. But is that reference information up to date? Is it even accessible to everybody? And if it's in different locations for different employees, is it consistent or are there subtle differences, which mean people aren't doing stuff in the same way across the organization? So that's another potential challenge. The E of Smarted is for equipment again as with skills and money you know employees may not need specific equipment to do many of the things being asked of them but if the outcome is going to require a particular piece of kit and they don't have it or it doesn't work very well you know say their, their laptop is running slow or something then the communications outcome is going to suffer so that's smarty and you could say if employees have the necessary skills money authority responsibilities time information and equipment it could be argued they have the ability to do what's being asked of them, on top of which they also need the D, the desire. And this is obviously crucial too, but it's where things can often go wrong. Because when we first came up with the Smarty principle, we just sort of left desire alone. But then we started looking at it a bit more closely. We realized there are actually three different types 
of desire or sources of desire that we need to pay attention to. So again, this applies not just to employees on the receiving end of internal communications, but inevitably the internal communication or external communication specialists themselves, that they have all the smarting resources they want. So the first source of desire is it comes, well, it's most obviously comes from the what's in it for me thing. If people can see, oh, I'm going to get something out of it, obviously they're more likely to want to do it. But they could be tapping into a second source of desire. If they put their corporate hat on, then they may not need a specific personal benefit, but they get motivated to do something because they can see how it will make life better for their colleagues or external stakeholders. So it can be an either or with these first two sources of desire, although both may be in play. But the third one, always has to be there. And this is the tricky one because it's all to do with people's comfort zones. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Think about it. If someone's asking you to do something new, which may be a bit unfamiliar, it may take you outside your comfort zone. And if you're being pushed outside your comfort zone, might you be less than enthusiastic about doing it? What do you reckon? I, I guess it depends on the person. I, I yeah. always uh, I always get a rush when I am trying something new, but it's only when I know that I've got the support behind me, so the smarted behind me, where I'll, well, I'll turn around and say, yes, for sure. Well, you've just, you've just nailed it because that's really what we were about to come on to because people tend to feel they're being pushed outside their comfort zone if they don't have well, it's not just confidence that they have all the smarty resources. It's about having justifiable confidence. You know, it's not about fake it till you make it. We think fake it till you make it is a disastrous thing to suggest people do. Their, their confidence should be justified. Otherwise, chances are they're not going to be anything like as enthusiastic about it as they, as they need to be. Does, does this make sense? Oh, absolutely. I'm terrible at fake it until you make it better. <laughs> um, I, I completely understand what you're saying about needing the sort of ability behind you and then the desires almost like the booster to Absolutely. kind of shoot you along. Yeah. So, so the, the important thing about this is, is what, well, you know, why does it matter particularly for internal communication? And there are a couple of reasons. So can we give you just a, a sort of a, a thought experiment, a little worked example? To, to help make this spring slide. Okay. And okay. I, hope, I so, hope our listeners are ready and, and are playing along with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's imagine a company, let's say um, an electronics firm, is about to launch two major communication campaigns. Okay. One is external uh, to promote a new phone, mm-hmm. and the other is internal, and it's about new health and safety procedures. Okay. So let's think through which parts of the SMARTED principle are going to be involved in each of these. So with the external campaign, the only resources the communicators really need to concern themselves with are the information and the desire. Because everything else, the money, authority, time and so on, that's all in the hands of the audience, isn't it? But when it's that health and safety campaign, it's actually down to the employer to make sure their audiences have every one of the smarted resources. And that's true of of all internal campaigns. Does, Does that make sense? It, it does, that, that you need internally more of those, those resources because it's dependent. The employees are your target audience and you're supplying both. Is that what yeah, you mean? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and um, of course, people's you know, skills and so on don't necessarily just come from, from inside. They could have gotten from their professional training if they're an accountant or they're you know, a lawyer or something. So, so it doesn't all depend on the, the employer, but the employer has a kind of duty of care 
to ensure that if they're asking people to do stuff, they, that the people have the necessary resources. And that means that the internal communication briefing process, if it's going to be truly effective, has to include steps which aren't needed for external comms because you have to make sure, hang on a second, you want people to do, you know, deliver this outcome. Are they actually going to be able to do it? Because if not, and if the briefing process doesn't pick up on that and the result doesn't happen, the internal communication teams are probably going to get it in the neck when actually it wasn't internal communication that was responsible. It was the fact that people didn't have the skills, they didn't have the time, they didn't have the whatever. So that's a, a very different sort of dynamic that's going on here. The second thing is that if you go back to that list of 12 issues that we discussed a few minutes ago, any that you recognize, you recognize because you or the people working with you are missing out on at least some of those smarted resources. And you can look at anything as an internal communication specialist, anything that's not working for you and question, okay, which specific smarted resources are missing and who needs them? You know, who needs those resources? Is it you? Is it members of your team? Is it some of your clients? You know, if you, if you recognize that thing about clients who don't know what they want, but they'll know it's what they want when they see it, could that be because you or your colleagues don't have the skills to help those clients identify what they want before they see it? Or maybe the clients themselves could do with being more skillful. Or perhaps the information in the form of the questions in your briefing template, maybe that, that's not up to the job. So there can be, you can always find that there's a smarty thing that's, that's missing here or that's you know, below par. Does, does that make sense? It, it's almost like an analytical tool where you can sit down and, and cross-check against each of the elements yeah. to see where the problem is and then, then delve a little bit deeper. Yeah. So yeah. I can imagine it's a challenging uh, situation to be in if you need to have this type of conversation, say, with your client or if you're in the external comms team and you're noticing that as an external comms person that there are some areas that are missing, how, how do you have that conversation? Do you start within the team or with the client or where do you start? Uh, well, that's, that's a really <laughs> important question because, I mean, the thing is that even if it's not someone's fault that they don't have all the smarted resources they need, many people, as we all know, can be very defensive about the very suggestion that they may not be as skillful at uh, particularly internal communications as they need to be. Um, and this might be because they've been long telling themselves they are as good as they need to be. So they, they may have become kind of complacent about their ability. It's that, that famous Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, have you discussed Dunning-Kruger before? No. So take full reins. Uh, oh, okay. Dun Dunning Kruger essentially it's the, the question of how do you know when you're incompetent? And if you if you're incompetent, then chances are you're not going to know you're incompetent because you don't have the skills to tell you that you're not good enough and so on. It's got the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, as it were. And it's it's worth looking up. It's a it's a fascinating sort of psychological effect that's that's been recognized for, for decades now. But the, the important thing is it's, it's slightly different from, you know, again, between external and internal. If we can focus on internal principally, because if you can sort the internal stuff out, external is probably, for the most part, going to be an easier ride because the, you know, the smarted resources are so much more critical uh, internally. And also there's something else going on that we need to, to sort of cover off as well. So if 
you're working with someone who you perceive is sort of inappropriately complacent about their ability uh, as either as an, an internal communication specialist or as a client, then the first thing, you need to make it safe for them to acknowledge that maybe they have a blind spot or two which they could work on. It's why we're such a big fan of the idea that you, know, you don't have to be able to get better because that's an attitude which immediately takes the conversation out of being critical and makes it sort of aspirational, as it were. And the important thing here is that you have to help them decide for themselves that they have room to improve. But importantly, you need to do that only really when the time is right, because there's absolutely no point getting people to acknowledge they need help to change if you aren't yet in a position to provide that help. You know, because otherwise they're just going to feel, oh, brilliant, thanks. So there may be a sort of an element of chicken and egg here, which, uh, which we'll need to discuss. But we have worked out a way of helping people to realise they need help, particularly with internal communication, without them feeling bad about the reasons why. Would you like us to take you through it? Yes, please. I'm all ears. Fantastic. Okay. Well, it comes back to, guess what? Dating the obvious again. And that obvious thing is that everybody in every organization communicates with their boss and usually with their peers. And if they manage others, they communicate with their team as well. Now, obviously, some people do it better than others. But the crucial thing is that everybody does it. And you might think, duh, so what? Well, the so what is that if you think about it, not everybody in an organization manages people. Not everyone manages budgets or IT systems or does sales or, in fact, any other business activity. So internal communication is unique because it is the only business activity that everybody does. And this means that uh, IC specialists alone are specializing in the one activity that everyone else is doing, which is crucial to understand when it comes to getting your head around why some clients may behave the way they do. Because only internal communication is susceptible of two what we call truth gaps. And these truth gaps give rise to so much of that complacency and defensiveness. And when you understand these truth gaps, you can explain their implications to people and suddenly it becomes okay that they need help and it's safe for them to acknowledge this. So these two truth gaps are absolutely fascinating. You know, that's expression, the truth will set you free. Well, there are two truths here that will set, set you and everybody else free. So the first truth gap is enshrined in the phrase, anyone can do it. Now, if you think about it, if you're talking about internal communication, that statement must be literally true. It has to be because everybody does do internal communicating of one sort or another. However, that phrase also has a colloquial meaning, does it not? When people say, well, anyone could do that, what they're implying is it requires no specialist knowledge or skill to do it as well as anyone else. And I, I think that's one of the challenges that internal communications have is that people around them think they can do it and the recognition of the skill yeah. from a, a true professional needs to be proven well, yeah, it, it absolutely does. And we can talk about how to, how to prove that in a, uh, in a few minutes. But the, the thing is, of course, as we know, anyone who's ever suffered from email overload or death by PowerPoint and so on, everybody knows that that colloquial meaning is anything but true when it comes to internal communication. So we have all, everybody has inherited an insidious gap 
between the literal truth of the statement, anyone can do it, and its colloquial falsehood. And that might not be a problem if it weren't for where that truth gap leaves people when they fall through it. You see, they might end up thinking, I should be good at internal communication because anyone can do it. So if you have clients who are telling themselves that, would that statement be true? Should a client be good at internal communication? What would you say? I I would hope that they would be good at it. Uh, They've had good coaching from a good internal communications professional, but I wouldn't wouldn't expect because that's why... That's why they need a professional. Uh, indeed, indeed it is. But they need to recognise that they had that need in the first place. So this is where things can get seriously messy because of the ambiguity inherent within the word should. This is a blind spot that so many people have and it can cause so much heartache. So we're going to propose ending it right now. And it will probably help if we use a couple of examples. So if we were to say... When you're driving your car, you should be stopping at red traffic lights, shouldn't you? Or on a crowded train, you really should get up, give up your seat to a pregnant woman. Does that make sense? Those are the kind of things that people would normally say? Yeah, people should okay. do these things. Okay. So now, in both scenarios, the word should is conveying a sense of duty or, or obligation. But what happens if we try a different example and say that... A flight from Paris to Rome, that should take what, about two hours, would you say? I guess so, yes. Okay. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. It should take about two hours. Are we saying that such a flight has a duty, an obligation to take two hours? Of course not. When we're using should in that context, what we actually mean is it would be reasonable to expect that it probably will take about two hours. So we have these two very different meanings of the word should. On the one hand, there's a sense of duty or obligation. And on the other, there's this sense of reasonable expectation. So if you have a client who is telling themselves, I should be good at internal communication, are they right? Are they wrong? Or is there now this second truth gap sitting in between those two very different meanings of should? What do you reckon? I think there's that that obligation sense in there as well yeah. with the word should. Yeah. But is the, is the expectation reasonable? You see, to make it safe for people to acknowledge they might need a little help, we have to explore this, this second truth gap. Because from a duty perspective, well, yeah, of course they have that, that duty because, you know, <laughs> it's a key part of their job for which they're paid good money. And on top of that, Everyone around them is relying on them to be good at it. So no question, they have that duty. But how reasonable is the expectation? What would make it reasonable to expect them to be good at it? And this is where it gets so fascinating, because to answer that question, we need a little history lesson. Can we take you back to 2003 for uh, for a moment, just to, to give you uh, an insight into what's going on here? Would that be all right? Of course. Okay. So in 2003... The project to map the human genome was completed and the people who did it got the Nobel Prize for their achievement and so on. And if you're old enough to remember, you may recall there was a fair amount of consternation at the time because they discovered that there were huge swathes of the human genome that didn't seem to do anything. Or if they were doing something, no one knew what it was. So there was loads of further research done over the last two decades to understand what 
if anything, all that genetic material is doing. And for quite a while, there were flurries of stories making it into the news as they uncovered things that they would call, you know, the ginger gene or the skinny gene or the smart gene and so on. Then if you remember any of that. I, I do remember vaguely. Yeah. Back in there. I, I was, I think I was in Washington, D.C. at the time, having a great time uh, in my internship at, at in 2000, was it 2003? Yeah, 2003, that was when it, when it all kicked off. But, I mean, the interesting thing is that it was only quite recently, in fact, it was during the pandemic, which is why it probably didn't get much attention, that they discovered something that is now known to be the internal communication gene. Now, this is a very exciting development because it is unique to the human genome. And it remains dormant during infancy and adolescence. But when we leave school or university, this gene will kick in at that point. And because it's part of human DNA, it enables anybody to just instinctively know exactly how to identify what needs communicating to whom, when and how in any business situation they ever encounter without anyone ever having to teach them. Brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You've, you've worked out the problem here, haven't you? It doesn't exist. You know it doesn't exist. Everybody knows it doesn't exist. However, pretty much every organisation in the world, it seems, behaves as if it did exist because they do expect people to just know how to do it without being taught. Or do they? Hang on. What about all those communication training courses you can go on? Okay, let's, let's give them a fair shout. All those courses you can take in writing skills or interpersonal skills or presentation skills and so on. Well, if you think about it, what they're teaching people is how to execute communication activities, not how to identify what, if anything, needs communicating in the first place or to whom it will be relevant. Is it any wonder email overload has been such a problem for the last 30 years? Are you starting to see the kind of the blind spot here? Uh, not thinking about the target audience and their experience would be my. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. But, the, but the, very, the very idea that human beings don't need to be taught how to be effective internal communication people is, is insane. You know, if a, if a client doesn't have an internal communication gene, which they don't because nobody does, and they haven't attended that course on how to be a good internal communication client because that course doesn't exist. Well, actually it does, but we've only just finished designing it. But it, seriously, is it any wonder some people may struggle a little regardless of how senior they may be? Again, is this making sense? Oh, absolutely. I have to share my pet peeve is when people say communicating and they, they're doing their PowerPoint, as you said, death by PowerPoint, and there's always a a megaphone, a picture of a megaphone, and oh. <laughs> it's that idea that communicating is shouting at people that, <laughs> that, that gets under my skin and I smile. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed your insights there, Rob. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or any additional thoughts for our takeaway thoughts for our listeners? The only, the only other takeaway thought that we would, uh, we would suggest is that to go back to where we started, you don't have to be able to get better. And that's true, not just of internal communication specialists and external communication specialists, but your clients as well. Thank you so much for your time, Rob. Absolute pleasure. It's been a joy. 